Welcome back to ASD, A New Perspective, a podcast show where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And we encourage you that growth for your child is possible. I'm Kat Lee, and in this week's podcast, Dr. Gutstein talks to us about the importance of adapting and our children. Adapting, changing when things aren't working for us to something different. Let's listen in. Okay, so first thing I want to talk today about is what it means, what the adaptation means. I may have talked about this before, but it's a really important point for you to think about and even more important for you to explain to other people, about other professionals, um, about in, in the word in the autism community, the research community, they use the word adapt and adaptation in a way that no one else uses it. Okay. Um, when we think about adapting, all right, we think about several different things. We think about, first of all, we think about making some kind of change, right? Adaptation, change. We're doing something, we're going to do something different, right? That's the way everyone outside of autism researchers use the term adapt, right? What we're doing isn't working, so we have to change what we're doing, right? Everybody with me? Okay. So, so first of all, let's talk about that. In the autism research world, if you do a search, if you, you can do this yourself, go to Google search and uh, under advanced search, which is on the upper left-hand side, you'll see some lines when you go to advanced search, and you put in the words autism, adapt, autism adaptation, autism adaptive, you can, you can have choices, and then put that for the title. And you do a search, you get lots, you get hundreds and hundreds of articles. But if you just look at any of those articles or all of them, you'll see that the way they define adapt is different than what I just said. And it's different than the rest of the world, because they use the word adapt basically as your score on the violent adaptive behavior scale, <laughs> which measures things like, you know, do you do your own laundry and do you button your shirts and, you know, more simple advanced things. It has nothing to do with how the rest of the world would define adaptation, right? And it really has created huge problems because they use that Vineland as an outcome measure to show how people learn to adapt <laughs> through their interventions or therapies, which doesn't show anything about learning to adapt. It just shows that they learn to do certain discrete skills, right? Okay. So that's a real major problem, right, is, you know, ad adaptation. So now let's say that <laughs> So we have to explain that to people in the field because if they see all these articles, they see these professionals talking about, you know, learning to adapt, they're going to get a very strange way of thinking of it. Anyone, as I said, any layperson or scientist outside of the autism field would scratch their head and say, that's not adapting. Adapting is changing basically when something you're doing isn't working. You do something different, right? Okay. So now we've made that distinction, and you're going to have to explain that. There's like a lot of things in the autism world. You have to explain things you would never have to explain to other people, but you do have to explain it here. Now let's say that we're talking to people who now understand what adapting actually means, which is, right, doing something, and you come across something, and you realize that, oh, what I'm doing isn't working, right? So there's three, at least three levels, then, of defining adapting. 
the first level or the simplest is, all right, what I'm doing isn't working, so I'll try something else that I know how to do, right? I realize that either the task has changed or the method I'm using isn't successful. I recognize that and I go into my repertoire of moves, whether that's decisions, actions, whatever, and I pick another one, right? All right, so that's one level. And in fact, uh, that is, you know, even though adapting is, is being defined weirdly enough, some of the intervention research, especially with adults and teenagers, really teaches them to do that, to recognize that and to pick something else out of their strategy when it's not working. So it's sort of like learning how not to be stuck in set, right? And how to shift when something you're doing, not to continue doing something when you're realizing it's not working. That's helpful. Okay. Now, another level of adapting is you come across, you recognize that something is not working, and you don't have a move to know what to do, right? And you, it's not in your repertoire. And that would mean there's two ways you can address that. One is to what we call improvise. And improvising often is, is not on the spot. Improvising is playing around with different ways of doing something, practicing, thinking about it, and coming up with a new move. I guess somebody could be done without improvising, so we just give you another move to do, uh, but then you're dependent on them. But let's say you develop a new move, right? And so now you have this new move to deal with that specific situation when your old moves aren't available. You have something you've added to your repertoire. Unfortunately, if you do it through instruction, the problem is going to be that it's very specific to that specific event occurring again. There's going to be any generalization, but you've got a new move. Now, when we look at outcome for adults, what we see, and even teenagers, is that as they get older and more is expected of them, and there's less formal compensations in the environment, as they get out, especially as they get out of school, their prognosis for independence and autonomy actually gets worse year by year. It doesn't get better. As opposed to if you look at typically developing young adults, they go through ups and downs and independence. But gradually, from almost everyone, things get better, right? And why? Because they learn to adapt. Now, that's a third type of adaptation. And what that type of adaptation is, is learning through facing challenges, through facing situations, experiences, where you you have to alter and adapt your way of thinking, your way of perceiving, interpreting things, what I call your mental operating system. Right? You have to take on more complex viewpoint of the world. You've got to deal with greater uncertainty. You've got to be able to use judgments because you don't have clear-cut things that you have to deal with. So you really, really have to change the way you operate in the world to be successful in what we call the real world, which is complex and dynamic, right? And it's that level of adaptation, you could say it's the other ones too, but no one studies that level of adaptation for people with autism, interestingly enough, which is about growth, right? And it's about what scientists call development as of a complex adaptive system. When, when, when educators or scientists talk about a dynamic development or adaptive development, they're using adapt adaptation in that third way, which is complexity, the growth of greater complexity, integration, agility, um, 
learning to use new mental tools, learning to use your mind in new ways, learning to develop more integration between those ways. That's the way educators use that term, adaptive learning. Okay? Because they talk about complex people as complex adaptive systems that have to continue to be. And they talk about the reason that that happens is we learn how to map, we learn how to engage productively with challenges in driving, right? And come up against those things that don't make sense or don't quite fit and aren't quite working. And then we have to readjust, right? Or regroup, um, expand, upgrade our way of thinking about something, approaching something, perceiving something, reacting to something. And it's not just adding a move, which is additive. It's reorganizing, right? It's transformational. Not everything changes, but you start your growth. So it's that third type of adaptation that educators do talk about that's in the educational literature, psychology to some degree, but that people in the autism community don't talk about. And so the, the interventions, the work that's done, again, first you're dealing with the probably obstacle of people defining, adapting, based on an instrument that doesn't measure adaptation, <laughs> which is what the research does. And if you get past that, you get into the definition of adapting as just learning a new skill or like a new way to do a job interview or a new strategy or, you know, a new script, right? Or recognizing when you have to shift from one thing to another. Again, nothing wrong with those things, but they don't address the real issue, which is one of mental neurological growth, dynamic growth, adapting the way you think, the way you use your mind, right? The way you use creativity, imagination, the way you use prior experience, the way you integrate different things, the way you think about the future, the way you make judgments based on that, the way you look at the gist of things, all those increases in complexity and also in your ability dynamically to continue to look at the situation as it changes and adapt to ongoing change around you in new ways because you're not going to be able to predict what's going to happen next, right? So you're being adaptive in a dynamic, fluid situation, right? So what you're going to have to explain to people is you can't use the word adaptation. You just can't use it and expect it to be understood, right? But you have to understand it. You're going to have to explain to people what the problem is because they're not going to understand because it's not reflected in the literature. It's not reflected in the way professionals think and people think. And that's a real problem if we're going to create interventions that allow people with autism to have, have well-being, to be successful, to have the flexibility to do what they want with their life. And that's what people don't understand. It's not, you know, they said, well, leave people with autism alone to be people with autism. But that is very rigid. That says, okay, then they're only going to be able to do this much. Their choices are then going to be this. And I'm saying uh, our goal is to give them a wide variety of choices. If they still want to be autistic in the traditional sense, that's fine. That's a choice. But I want to give them the options to be whatever within, you know, then, then everybody has certain limitations. But, but I think that we can expand those limitations dramatically if we help people with autism to develop the capacity for what we're calling dynamic adaptation, lifelong ability to adapt, right? Based on challenge, based on facing things that challenge the current 
mental operating system. That's how growth occurs. And to be able to engage productively, not just, you know, throw somebody into the deep end of the pool, that's not a challenge, it's a threat, but to engage productively with that, with the help of guides and eventually, hopefully, on your own. So let's start with that, which is that that's dealing with adapting. So what are we adapting? What kind of challenges are we adapting to? Well, the, now we're going to get into the difference between complicated, complex, and complex and dynamic things. Dynamic intelligence that we're talking about, our goal, um, has really two, two facets to it, or several facets to it. It's not just being able to think in one way, which you might call a dynamic way, which doesn't make any sense, actually. Just be able to use your mental resources in an optimal way based on what you're dealing with and what you're trying to do, right? what the situation is, what the task is, and what you're trying to do in it. So we can make one distinction between things that are simple right, and things that are either complicated or complex, and let me talk about that. Simple, okay? Um, we were I was just talking earlier with my dynamic intelligence group about a man with autism who learned when he was a child that you're not supposed to eat before going to the dentist. Okay, so um, he was facing a, a, a party that he actually had arranged, a dinner party, but it was a, a luncheon, and then he was followed by a dental appointment. He was freaking out because he said, what am I supposed to eat before I go to the dentist? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And what had happened was there was a simple thing he had learned as a child, right? You know, if this, don't eat before you go to the dentist. Simple association. Don't eat before you go to the dentist, right? And all he needed to learn, when he was able to get through this in about a minute, when, you know, his consultant was able to say, wait a minute, there's a condition here. It's conditional. It's not just simple. And you're, and people don't just be able to do conditional things without already or without anything, which is, um, you can eat if you have a chance to then brush your teeth or if you have a party or, you know, there's a bunch of conditions where it's okay. He said, all right, now I can go and not worry about the party. Now, nothing, he didn't learn to do anything differently. Think about adapting. He learned to adapt based on what was already in his repertoire. He already knows conditional thinking. He was just stuck in set. You see what I mean? He was stuck in that simple way of doing it as a child. And the consultant was able to point out, Something that he's able to do now, which is to think conditional. He has no trouble, very bright guy, IQ, static IQ, you know, traditional IQ. He's able to fix it right by down, right? So he adapted in that very simplistic way. Did he grow in any way? Did anything change in his nervous system? There's no operation? No, of course not. It was within his system. And, okay, so that, that gives you an example of between uh, simple to complicated. Now, what do I mean by complicated? When something's complicated, it means that we can't just use that simple association anymore, right? We start to think in more of a conditional way, right? Well, what if this, this, this? We think of several possible conditions that will lead to different responses that we have. That's one aspect of things being complicated. Another aspect of things being complicated is if they're what I call hierarchical or conceptual. So I'll give an example. Um, of a conceptual problem. Um, how are um, birds and trees the same? Comes out on a cute test. How are they the same? 
No, they're both living things, right? So you've got to pick the right conceptual level. It's sort of a conditional thing, but it's learning sort of hierarchically, right? concepts. And, and, and figure out which is the right level to use. And then you get the right answer, right? People with autism can do that. That's more complicated. Or there's a longer sequence of things. First I have to do this, and then there's combine that with conditional thinking. First I have to do this, and if I get A result, then I have to go that way. If I get B result, I have that way. Then you have sort of a flow chart, right? We, each, each time you do something, you can see a series of conditions and then go to the next thing and the next thing. It get pretty complicated, right? You can combine that with conceptual thinking. Another thing that makes things complicated is if things are symbolic. So you have, you know, maps are symbolic, you know, language is symbolic, right? Representation. Right? Those add to, they add to things that are complicated. Okay. So what we know is that <clears throat> people with autism are able to function in, and use complicated ways of thinking to deal with complicated situations, complicated tasks, I shouldn't call them situations, complicated tasks and decisions right? where they can use conditionality, where they can compare, which has more good things or bad things, right, um, where they can use different levels of analysis, different types of analysis, where they can even use concepts, right. Um, and this man was a good example, was able to do that, but was able to do even more. So I'll give you a more, a more complicated example of complicated thinking. When I was a teenager, a high school junior, I was preparing for standard tests in the United States called the SATs, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, which were in those days very critical in terms of getting into college or college you desired. In higher school, it was better. And the SATs had several different sections. Each section was a bit different in the way you had to deal with them, right? And whether that was a mathematical thing or whether it was what we call analogies, right? Um, which is a good example of analogy. A, um, Caterpillar is to a butterfly like a blank is to a baby. <laughs> you might say a fetus is to a baby, right? Maybe not the best, but that would be an example of something. And you have to do that, all right? But they're different. They were different sections. But the types of things stayed standard year to year. The exact content changed, really, but what they gave you, whether it was analogies or math or this, always stayed the same. So I, I took the SATs without any preparation. We didn't know in those days that you're supposed to do a lot of preparation. And I got a score that was okay, but it wasn't really great. And so I decided that I needed to take one of those little courses to prepare myself for the next time I would take it, I'd take it again. And I went to this person named Stanley Kaplan, who was in Brooklyn, New York when I was there, and he was a very good teacher and he help people prepare for the SATs. You know, that became a multi-billion dollar industry, Stanley Kaplan, but at that point it was just me and Stanley and a bunch of other students. Um, he died a long time ago. Anyway, um, and what he did was he taught me um, very good, conditional, compl complicated thinking. Complicated. So when you get to this section here, the strategies here, the techniques, here's the way, you, you know, approach each of these different sections of the SAT. And you practice, you practice, you practice, you practice, and you recognize, oh, I'm in this section, 
So I'm supposed to do it this way, this section this way, right? And he gave us other strategies about what to do first and what to do if you're running out of time and how much time to spend on this and that and that and when to guess and when not to guess and when to blah, 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 blah. So there's a whole lot of conditional types of thinking. And it turned out that I worked hard at that and my score went up 200 points, right? Not because I got smarter or, and by the way, not because I learned to think differently in the world, but I learned how to do this complicated thing of the SAT, right? This specific complicated task, right? Um, and it was complicated, but not complex. And let me give you an example. When something gets complex, it means we can't do Stanley counting. It means that it doesn't fit into conditional thinking. We can't use that type of reasoning, sequential conditional thinking, to help us make the right judgments, help us make the make decisions. Either there's just too many variables or, or things that are just subjective, right? Or contextually relative, that there's just no way to use any of that formal reasoning right, to get where you want to go with that. So anyway, um, I'm, I, I got this uh, uh, kit to build a sandbox for my grandson. I have to know I'm not great. My eye-hand stuff is not great. My motor stuff is not great. Why well, I'm a psychologist is because I'm a failed optician, by the way. My father was an optician back in the days when you had to have very fine motor control, fine lenses and things. And he wanted me to be his assistant, and I was so clumsy, he literally denigrated me, kicked me out, and said, you better go be a professor because you can't do anything, right? And that was an insult for him because he was such a craftsman, so I became a professor because I thought that was all I could do, right? <laughs> I was like handicapped, so I, had, my, my, I was handicapped, so all I could do was be a professor. This is funny. Um, or a psychologist, to use my mind. But anyway, uh, so I'm not great with my hands, although I've worked at it. So I got this kit, and I start uh, building, you know, the, the sandbox. And the instructions were, were written by someone from another country whose English was not very good, and um, couldn't explain. There were no diagrams, and you know, you start building, and you realize, oh, I have no idea what to do next. There's no helpline. There's nobody to ask. Them. And besides which, you realize, oh, you know, some of these parts may not be machined perfectly. You know, these wooden parts, and so. The problem may be that I read the instructions wrong or that they just didn't make it right, right? Or I'm trying to, you know, take the wrong piece and put it into the wrong place or I've actually done something several steps before that got me into this problem because I used the piece there and I should have used a different piece so I would have it now, right? You have all these different things that come up. The question is, what do you do when you reach that type of issue where things are not quite working, which always happens to me with one of these kits? Well, that's when things get complex because I have no way to use conditional thinking. Now you could say, you go back and start over again. <laughs> you can start over again until you die, right? Or just keep plunging ahead and break everything. I've done that in the past where I try to force something and then the whole thing split, the wood split. And that was the whole kit's now destroyed and I can't return it. Return the kit, I guess, which is a big hassle from some kit probably made in China and God knows if the company's even there, you know? Um, like, what do I do? Right. So now things are complex because um, I'm going to, you know, I've got to do something at some point. I'm not going to just leave it forever. But, you know, I can't really predict 
what, I don't have a strategy, right, that someone can give a pull out for what to do next. Now, I can use prior experience with kids. One thing I get from my prior experiences, if I'm working for a couple hours and I get frustrated, it's probably not a good time to make a decision. So I learned that about me, that I need to take a break. How long a break? I don't know. If I take too long a break, I'll just forget it and say the heck with it. But if I don't take enough of a break, I'll just still be tired and frustrated. So I take a break. I did learn that about myself. And um, I learned that my tendency personally is to try to force it to happen, and that doesn't work very well. Um, so I, I sort of eliminate that one as, as a good idea. Well, sometimes you just have to do that, by the way, or you may have to drill another hole. It was what I could drill the hole, made a bigger chain. I've done that in the past, too. Anyway, what I try to figure out is what can I try now that won't irreparably break the thing, right? And there's a bit of a trial and error, right? Which is, can I do something that doesn't completely take it apart, spent hours, and doesn't completely risk breaking the thing, right? But there's a lot of leeway in there. And so I see it as complex, right? I can't use any of those nice types of reasoning. I have to use my judgment, my past experience. I can ask other people, which I did. I asked my wife, I asked everybody sitting around confused because the instructions suck. I mean, they just, they're terrible. And nobody can figure out, you know, A and part Z and part B, and they, they're supposed to be lettered and they're not, and you know, anyway. Measure your things, anyway. <laughs> so that's a good, yeah, there's many examples of things that are complex, but I just wanted to give you an example of complex. Now, let's look at the concepts of dynamic, complex dynamic, because that's really, you know, the, the, the mix of that is really interesting. Let's go back to that same task I was just talking about. Well, on one level, you could think of it as dynamic. Dynamic means there's a sense of a process where your actions, you can't totally predict the impact of your actions on the environment, right? And so you can take the best action you can think of, see what happens, and try to take the next one, learn as you're going along. But the way I think about a task like that, and you probably do too, it's not dynamic. I, don't, I think of it as static. But, and I'll tell you why. I think of it as static because I can walk away from it. It doesn't change. It doesn't yell at me when I walk away. It doesn't cease to exist. It doesn't disassemble. It just is there. But the wood's there. Nothing changes. The task is just there. Right? I could think of it as dynamic. I could, if I want to, Say, okay, there's this process. Let me take the next step and see what happens. And then based on that, I'll take the next one. And sometimes you start getting moves to the dynamic mode. But basically, I think of tasks like that as more static, complex with static. Take something like a conversation, and you don't think of it as static. Because guess what? If you do nothing, things keep changing. Someone will say, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> you can't just walk away in the middle of it if things aren't working. Right? Uh, being in a uh, riding a rapids, you can't just walk away. Now you could you could stop, although you can stop. And while you're in the rapids, you can't. Before the rapids, you could stop. While you're in the midst of the rapids, you can't just stop and say, "Well, I'll just paddle over to the bank," because you can't. The rapids are moving around. They're moving. They're changing, and you can't just walk away. Thanks for joining us for ASD, A New Perspective, a podcast show where we help you understand the mind of your child. 
And we always encourage you that growth for your child is possible. I'm Kat Lee. See you next time.